Well, thank you, choir. You know, it's always exciting to me whenever, we, uh, whenever we're in a position where one of our staff members are out. It's always exciting to see how God just plugs other people in. And uh, with Nathan, our worship pastor, being out today, uh, having some others that are leading, man, it's just so, so well done and uh, so appreciative of those that are stepping in, helping to lead this morning. Thank you, choir, every Sunday for bringing it and uh, leading us to, uh, to worship God and uh, to do that authentically. Well, we've been in the book of 1 Corinthians now for a while. We're going to continue uh, today in chapter 10 is where we're going to be. If you want to go ahead and turn there, uh, you can join me in chapter 10. We'll get there in just a few minutes. And we're continuing through this series. I mean, it's a long series. Obviously, it takes a long time to go through a whole book of the Bible. But 1 Corinthians is where we've been. It's been a good run, really. It's been uh, extremely beneficial, I think, for me in my own walk, hopefully for you in your walk as well, but also for us as a ministry, as a church, because what Paul does here and this book uh, is that he deals with a lot of issues in a real living, breathing church just like ours. And he deals with issues that this church had 2,000 years ago, and he addresses those issues. He does it very forthrightly, sometimes very uncomfortably. And uh, so we get to read the letter. I mean, this is the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote, and uh, you've got it bound up sitting on your lap right there in front of you, and we get to read it word for word. And so that's what we've been going through here in these recent uh, months is through the book of First Corinthians. Well, I am an Olympics freak. I'm addicted to the Olympics. I love the Olympics. Now, I don't get into the Winter Olympics as much because um, I'm not kind of the winter guy. Uh, you know, we had four, you probably don't either, I guess, and we had like four snowflakes back in the winter. You know, it's not like you can ski on that, right? So a lot of us that live, you know, from this area, you know, we're born and raised around this area. We don't get into the Winter Olympics as much, but I love the Summer Olympics, and I have for really for as long as I can remember. From the time I was a little kid, man, I would just be glued to the TV set watching the Summer Olympics. In fact, I remember 1984, um, uh, we got our first VCR that year, right? And, uh, and I think it's still blinking on 12, uh, actually. And uh, we got our first VCR that year, and uh, we video. <laughs> man, this is so goofy. We videotaped like the whole Olympics, like everything, it seemed like. I mean, all the track and field and swimming and gymnastics and, you know, like what the sword fight and that kind of stuff. Well, I think we videoed all of it, right? We had all these VHS tapes. My dad, my dad had to almost add on another room in our house just to store the VHS tapes that were there. But I love the Olympics. Well, there was one particular Olympics that stands out to me. It was the 1988 Summer Games. It was in Seoul, South Korea. And the reason it stands out to me is because of one particular event, and it was the 100-meter dash. Uh, it was really the, the pinnacle event of the whole Olympics. In fact, everything surrounding that Olympics, for the most part, aimed towards that one event because the whole world was talking about it. 1988, Seoul, South Korea. Uh, uh, Carl Lewis was at really kind of the height of his career um, the fastest sprinter in U.S. history, really, at that time. Uh, he was winning everything. But there was another fellow that was coming up. Uh, Carl Lewis would, would ultimately race under the, the U.S. flag. Well, Ben Johnson here was racing under the Canadian flag. Ben Johnson was fast in his own right. He was an incredibly fast uh, individual. And uh, Carl Lewis, though he was the reigning gold medalist from the LA Games in 84, uh, Ben Johnson had been really coming onto the scene pretty quickly uh, in, in these recent months. And so just before the Olympics, uh, you know, in 1988 were held there in Seoul, South Korea, Ben Johnson actually won the world championships. He had, he had set a world record in doing so. And, uh, and so as they settled into the blocks on this particular fall day there in Seoul, South Korea, 100,000 sets of eyes in the stadium were watching these two men in the 100-meter final. Not only 100,000 sets of eyes there, but every set of eyes that seemed around the world were glued in on this race. It was the centerpiece of these Olympics. 
And so as Carl Lewis settles into his blocks, Ben Johnson settles into his blocks, the gun goes off, and as was customary, Ben Johnson got off to an amazingly fast start. He was always extremely fast out of the blocks, and uh, very, very quickly, he had already built about a half-stride lead over the field. You can see that here already. Well, when they broke the tape at the end of the, at the, end of the race, Carl Lewis would set a U.S. record in 100 meters, 9.92 seconds, uh, fastest any American had ever run that distance. The bad news, however, was that he wasn't the fastest on the track that day because Ben Johnson would break the tape at 9.79. He would set an American, or he would set a world record. No one in history had ever run 100 meters faster than Ben Johnson did that day. Or they would step on the medal platform, and there Ben Johnson would get his gold medal, Carl Lewis would get his silver, and I believe it was Linford Christie from Great Britain, if I remember right, would be the one that would get the, uh, the bronze It was the best race that anyone could have ever hoped for. But everything would change just 48 hours later because there would be some results that would come back. People had speculated for quite a while about Ben Johnson, but the tests and the the results would confirm that one of the primary reasons he ran 979 was because of the aid of performance-enhancing drugs. 1988. The gold medal was stripped from him. It was taken from him. He lost an awful lot because of that choice, not only in endorsements, but also was banned, really, from track and field from that point forward. Carl Lewis was given the gold medal, and the world was just, was just sitting in stunned disbelief at everything that had happened. You know, you look at that circumstance, and the question that begs an answer is this. What if... What if Ben Johnson had just chosen to do it the right way? I mean, he was an incredibly gifted athlete already, you could tell. He was incredibly fast. I mean, he, he was gifted with, a, with speed. He was gifted with quickness out of the blocks. I mean, he was already one of the premier sprinters in history. What if he had only chosen to go the right way? What if he had only chosen to train harder? What if he had only chosen to, 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 to work longer? What if he had only chosen to do it the right way? What if he had chosen just to discipline himself as opposed to injecting himself? When he stood at that crossroads, what if he had made the right choice? What would have happened as a result? We'll never know. But one thing we do know is that the crossroads that he stood at are crossroads that we often find ourselves at as well. Crossroads where a decision has to be made. And it may not involve a gold medal, and it probably doesn't involve a 100-meter sprint, and it more than likely isn't going to be broadcast on worldwide television, and no one else may ever know except for the results of the choice that we make. But we all face the crossroads, don't we? Some of you are at the crossroads right now today, perhaps, and you're at this point in your life. And as we stand at those crossroads, the stakes are often much the same. We have an awful lot to lose, but at the same time, if we get it right, we have an awful lot to gain. Maybe for your crossroads, it's in the workplace. Maybe you've got a boss who's asking you to do things that in your heart you know are not right asking you to shade some numbers, asking you to, 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 to just kind of move the boundaries a bit. And as you stand at that crossroads, you have a decision to make. Either you're going to go the right way or you're going to go the wrong way. Either you're going to honor God and do what's right or you're going to dishonor God and do maybe even what you and yourself and your flesh wants to do. But the crossroads is very real. Maybe for you, it, it, it involves a relationship. Maybe you're a single person, you're dating, and you're with a person, and you know, this isn't who God wants for me. This isn't, this isn't what, I just know in my heart, but you know what, I, I, I just want to be with somebody. And so I'm going to lower my standard, and I'm going to do, go this direction, as opposed to maintain a standard God wants and go the right way. And you stay at the crossroads. Maybe for you, it's financial. Man, here we come, tax season, right? Here we go, another few weeks and taxes are due. Some of you have already turned them in. Some of you haven't. You know, you're going to be sitting down with your pencil in hand and you're going to have an accountant telling you, hey, you could do this, you could do that. You're going to have people telling you to do the right way and people encourage you to do the wrong way. 
And you're at a crossroads and you have an awful lot to lose and an awful lot to gain and you've got to make a choice. And the crossroads involves a lot of different scenarios. It involves cheating or lying or stealing or lowering a standard or raising a standard, doing what's wrong, doing what's right. But the crossroads is very real. And here's what I found in life is that many times those crossroads come on you unexpectedly. Many times they're like an open manhole cover, right? You're just kind of walking along, enjoying the day, looking at the birds, looking at the sky, and (laughs) down you go. Open manhole cover. You never even saw it coming. You didn't have a chance to to prepare. You didn't have a chance to to get ready in advance. And many times the crossroads are just that way to where you find yourself at an intersection where you have to make a choice. And there are people waiting on you. And there are people that are prodding and pushing you. And there are people that are pulling you. And and there is pressure and there is stress and there is a choice to make and you have to make the decision. What do you do at the crossroads? Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, you don't have to turn there, but just notice what it says here. He says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Have you ever felt that war? Man, the, that, that is a battleground where the crossroads meet many times. An absolute battleground where we have to decide, do I go the right way or do I go the wrong way? This morning I want to look at a message entitled Crossroads. And we're going to look in chapter 10, at least the first 13 verses of this chapter specifically. And we're going to find what the Apostle Paul, as he writes a real letter to real believers in a real church in the city of Corinth, we're going to find what he has to say to them in these 13 verses. But before we begin to sift through there, I just want to make mention that this could be a pivotal message for a lot of us, a lot of us. Not because of anything really, you know, fancy, I'm going to say. You know, I'm all out of fancy. I don't have a whole lot of fancy (laughs) left. You know, I I just try to commit myself to preaching what God has already said first and letting it speak for itself. And and you're going to, this is going to be a pivotal message, not because of something I say, but because of what God is going to say to you through his word. And the decision that you're going to have to make could have consequences or blessings and benefits that you can't even possibly begin to see today. And so I want to give you, I want to give you just a little summary statement. And off of that summary statement, we're going to begin to sift through these first 13 verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And the summary statement is this, that every temptation is a test. Every temptation is a test. I rarely do this, but... um, uh, j- just, I want you to repeat that with me, just so, so that you'll say it, okay? Ready? One, two, three. Every temptation is a test, all right? Now we'll, now we'll do it like, like you're awake. Um, ready? One, like you believe it. One, two, three. Every temptation is a test. All right, perfect. Let's begin to walk through these first 13 verses, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In the first four verses, we find that Paul is is setting the stage for what he's going to say later in the chapter. Now, the book of 1 Corinthians, again, as I said earlier, is an interesting book because it is literally a letter. Paul writing this letter to a real church in Corinth. This church had a lot of issues. They had a lot of problems going on in their church. There was immorality going on. There was a lot of selfishness. There was backbiting. There were factions and divisions. I mean, everywhere you turn, there was a problem popping itself up. There was another fire to put out. And so the the people in the church at Corinth had asked Paul some questions. Paul, at this point, was not in the city there. He had spent a year and a half there, but he was not there at the time. And they had written him a letter. Paul would, would also catch wind that there were a lot of these issues going on. So Paul would write a letter called 1 Corinthians back to them to deal with these questions, to deal with the issues that were cropping up. Well, what he says here in these first four verses is interesting. Let's go ahead and read through them, then I'll make comment. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, he says to these Christians in Corinth, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. 
Now, at this point, you're probably wondering, what in the world is he talking about? Verse 2, he says, And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now, that's an odd-sounding set of verses, but there's really a, a, a purpose there. You have to remember that Paul is not writing to a group of Christians that were saved out of the city of Jerusalem. These people live in Corinth, all right? And if you saw it on a map, Corinth is in modern-day Greece. It's not the Bible lands. We're not talking about Old Testament and New Testament lands. These people were living in a very secular city in a very secular environment who did not have a Christian context, and they had no Jewish background. And yet Paul is assuming that because they are believers, there would have been a hunger and a thirst for the Word of God. They would have had access to basically the Old Testament at this point. And he is assuming that they would have understanding of the Old Testament history. And so what Paul is doing is he, is, he is reminding these believers in Corinth that you are standing on the shoulders of people who came before you. He, he says the word our fa- the phrase our fathers. He says you've got other Old Testament saints that came before you who, uh, who, who knew, knew God, they walked with God, and you stand on their shoulders. And, and so he's looking back to this generation of believers that came before. He says they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. It's a reference to them crossing the Red Sea. It's a reference to the Exodus and how God provided for them as they crossed the Red Sea and as he, as he provided for them in the wilderness, the manna and the quail and, the, and the, the, the food, the water that God provided. He's referencing all this. And at the end of that verse, in verse 4, at the very end of that passage, he, he makes mention of Jesus. And he calls Jesus the rock who, who was following them all the way through the wilderness. This is a great verse. And this is really a great verse because if you're ever in a conversation with someone, or if you ever wonder to yourself, you know, this whole deity of Jesus thing. I mean, was Jesus really God? Does the Bible really teach this? Bam, here you go. Here's a great passage because the Apostle Paul himself is saying, looking all the way back to the Old Testament days, this is centuries, he says that their Jesus was, without beginning, without end, you know, the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, there is Jesus in the Old Testament days walking with the Old Testament saints, leading them through the wilderness. I mean, what a great picture, what a great support for the, de- for the deity of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is setting the stage here. He's saying to, to, to the believers in Corinth, he says, you stand on the shoulders of other believers who came before you. Oh, but there was a problem. Look, look at what it says in verse 5 and verse 6. He says, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. That's not a good phrase. You don't want that on your tombstone, by, by the way. Yeah, a man with whom God was not well pleased. <laughs> That's probably a discounted tombstone, I have a feeling. So, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Have you ever read the Old Testament? Have you ever wondered to yourself, you know, boy, it seemed like God was, boy, he was really strict back in the Old Testament. Some would even go so far as to say, the God of the Old Testament is not the same as the God of the New Testament. Don't believe that for an instant. Yes, he is. There is an awful lot of grace in the Old Testament. But there, it seems, seems to be a case that God often disciplined in ways differently than he did in the New Testament. This is going to be an example. Why did he do that? Verse 6, these things happened. They lived in ways that weren't well-pleasing to God. They happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. You ever watch America's Funniest Home Videos? You ever watch that? I love that show. It's one of my all-time favorite shows. Me and the kids, we'll just sit on the couch and just laugh like crazy people watching America's Funniest Home Videos. 
I've learned a lot of things not to do in my life. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you have too, right? Uh, by watching, I don't skateboard because I've seen America's Funniest Home Videos, right? You know, I don't pet animals I've never met because of America's Funniest Home Videos. I mean, I don't jump on trampolines. I mean, I don't walk out on frozen ponds. I mean, there's a lot of things. <laughs> I just don't do them, thankfully, because of that show. I mean, those people existed as an example for me, right? I think that's why God allowed that show to come into creation. They are examples for us. This is what Paul is saying. He looks back in these Corinthians lives, and he says, you know, back before you, there were a lot of believers who loved God, and they trusted him, and they knew him, and they're in heaven today, and you stand on their shoulders. But with many of them, God was not pleased. And, and, and he dealt with them severely. And he's going to give some examples in just a second. He dealt with them in very dramatic ways. Why did he do that? It seems partly because he was setting them as an example for you and for me and for us, those that would come afterwards, as an example. So well, what if God never dealt with immorality in the Old Testament? What would we begin to think? Must not be a big deal to God. Guess it's okay for me to do it. God dealt with them, sometimes very severely, because they were serving as what? As examples for those who would come after, which includes you and me as well. And then Paul begins to go through some examples here. He lists about four different things. Look at verse 7. He says, Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they stood up to play. That's a reference to Exodus chapter 32. If you have one of those fancy Bibles, and it's got the cross-references in the margin, you're probably going to see Exodus 32 there. The, the setting there is when Moses went up on Mount Sinai. He was there for 40 days. Uh, he would come down with the Ten Commandments. Remember the movie? <laughs> right? If you haven't read the Bible, you might have seen the movie. Uh, remember, he, Moses comes down out of, off of Mount Sinai. He's got the Ten Commandments, and he gets angry, and he breaks them. Why did he do that? Because of what Paul's talking about right here. Exodus 32, he comes down off the mountain. He finds his own brother, Aaron, who's suddenly been transformed into a worship leader. And Aaron has encouraged all the people because they're tired of waiting on Moses to come down. They say, we need a God to serve. And so Aaron says, well, I got an idea. Why don't you just take all the gold out of your ears, all the gold jewelry you got. I'll put together, melt it down. We'll make a golden calf and we'll let that be our substitute God. God's not real happy with that. It, to my knowledge, what you read of in Exodus 32 is the largest worship service you read of in the entire Old Testament. And it was false worship. <laughs> Worshiping a golden calf, for crying out loud. And th this is a side note. This is completely free. This is like a bonus statement. Um, be very careful when you start watching slick-talking preachers on TV with big, gigantic churches. Be very careful that you don't validate their message by the size of their congregation. Just, I'm just saying. There are some very legitimately huge churches that are preaching what they need to preach. And God has blessed them greatly, but not everyone. So just be careful. The largest recorded worship service in the Old Testament, they worshiped a golden calf. <laughs> just saying. So looking back to the Old Testament, Paul says, don't be idolaters. Anything we ever put between us and God is a substitute God in our lives. We do the same thing today. Verse 8, he says, nor let us act immorally, he says to these Corinthian believers reading this letter. He says, don't let us act immorally, as some of them did. 23,000 fell in one day. It's a reference to an event in Numbers chapter 25. We won't go there for the sake of time. Don't act immorally, Paul says. You go on to the next verse, verse 9. He says, nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did. And they were destroyed by the serpents. What you begin to see here, boy, God is really setting an example. 
couple things he, he doesn't desire for our lives. One is idolatry and other is immorality. And here is putting him to the test. In other words, when, when we, we try to make God prove things to us, when we've already got all the proof we need, you've got it sitting in your lap, 66 books comprised into one called the Bible, right? It's God's word without error, his word to us. We trust it, we can bank on it, if we live by it, we're going to see the benefits. We don't have to put God to the test. They did in the Old Testament. Again, a reference to the book of Numbers. And God dealt with them. They, they, they needed to trust him. Now, there are other times when God would be put to the test. You think of Gideon. Yeah, God didn't, didn't severely discipline Gideon for that necessarily. But here, it was the, a time when God would set an example. Verse 10. Well, here's a good one to put on your fridge, right, for your kids. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Right? <laughs> Some of you are thinking, we're starting family devotion tonight. <laughs> yeah, we're getting the kids around the table. It's 1 Corinthians 10.10. 10, this is it. No more grumbling, kids. Or this, <laughs> this is a possibility. All right, so do not grumble. Why, why is grumbling such an issue? Because think about it with your children. When, when, when your kids grumble or when we grumble, kind of what we're saying is, is, number one, I don't respect your authority. And number two, I feel like my way is better. And again, grumbling seems so benign to us. It doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But in this context, again, in the book of Numbers, I mean, there was a lesson to be learned here. These Israelites, says that at this point in their history, are having hard lessons to learn. God dealt with them severely at times, setting an example for us, showing that these things are very serious. The stakes are very, very high. It doesn't mean we're afraid of God. It doesn't mean that we, we don't come authentically and bring all of our questions and our fears and those things to God. It doesn't mean that at all, but it, what it does say is that we have to take our walk with him very, very seriously. And so Paul is walking through this example, all example after example after example, and he's pointing back to the Old Testament, and what he's reminding, what he's aiming to is, is the simple statement that every temptation is a test. Every single temptation we face wrapped up in that temptation is a test. Look at what it says, verses 11 and 12. He says, now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Every temptation is a test. Everything in this passage, I believe, pulls us towards the next verse, the last one we're going to look at in this passage, and it's verse 13. Notice what Paul says. He says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation he will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Now that's an interesting passage of Scripture, an interesting verse. There's a Greek word there that's translated from temptation. It's the Greek word parasmos, and it's an interesting Greek word. It's translated temptation here for us, but it doesn't always get translated that way. In fact, if you read other passages, this is going to sound like a real preacher nerd kind of a statement, but it has huge implications for you. So just follow me here. That whenever you read other passages of Scripture, when you come across that Greek word parasmos, sometimes they'll translate it temptation, and sometimes they'll translate it as test or trial. Now, I might have been born in the evening, but not last night. And so my question here is, you know, that, there, there are two huge differences between the two. I mean, there is a temptation, right? The devil on your shoulder, pointy ears, pitchfork, right? The jumpsuit, the red jumpsuit. You know, he's on your, show, you know, on your shoulder saying, do this, come over here and come to the dark side. That's temptation. We don't see te uh, tests and trials that way. We see tests and trials differently, don't we? 
I mean, raise your hand if you're with me on this. Do you see? Right, there are two different things. So why is it that in the Greek language in the Bible, why is it that the same Greek word parasmos is sometimes translated temptation, but at other times, vastly differently, it's translated as test or trial? What decides the difference? How do we know which way to translate it? This is so incredibly important. The way the New Testament writers, inspired by God, would know how to, how to translate it, or the way, the way that it would be translated today from that Greek word, is depending on, one, the context, but number two, the response of the person. You see, the Greek word parasmos is a neutral word. It's a neutral word. It doesn't carry any positive or negative connotation at all. What decides how it's translated is on the response of the person to the circumstance that they face. It's like a brick. If I had a, if I had a thought, if I was smarter, I would have brought a brick with me this morning, the visual. If I had a brick in my hand, right? The brick is neutral. It's not good or bad. I could throw that brick through your window and bring destruction, or I could use that brick to help build a school and educate kids. I could either use that neutral object for either harm and destruction or something positive, beneficial, and good. That Greek word parasmos is a neutral word. It doesn't mean anything good or bad necessarily. What decides how it is translated today in your English Bible is based on the response of the person in the midst of their circumstance. In fact, we, we see an example of that in James chapter 1. Let me, let me get you to take a look at this. You don't have to flip there, but just look on the overhead. James says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. The word trials and testing, are, I've highlighted those for a reason, because they, they're basically that, they're that same Greek word. <laughs> In 1 Corinthians 10, parasmos is translated temptation. In James chapter 1, parasmos is translated trials and testing. Same Greek word. He says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, when you stand at the crossroads, regardless of what that crossroads may be, it may be that you're unhappy in your marriage and there's another woman, there's another man that looks so much more appealing, that understands you so much better than your spouse. And as you stand at that crossroads deciding, do I hold true to my integrity and hold true to my vows, or do I pursue a different path? That as you stand at that crossroads, what decides whether that is a temptation to you or a test for you is your response. And if you give in and you go the wrong way, then that is a temptation. The circumstance is neutral. That circumstance is neutral, but if you give in and go the wrong way, it is a temptation. And if you, per, uh, if you uh, uh, distance yourself and go the right way and obey God and honor God and follow God, then it is a test. And both directions carry ramifications. If we give in and we do wrong, what we find is there is a cost. If we don't give in and if we do, what right, uh, we do what's right, we find... There is great benefit. What if we do what's right? We face a, a neutral circumstance. Again, it may be a boss encouraging you to do something wrong. It may be a temp, uh, something, a circumstance in your life where, where uh, uh, you know, there's an option to do what's incredibly wrong, to lie, to steal, to cheat, to whatever it may be. 
For some of you, it may even be with this weekend. <laughs> you know, I mean, here we are, St. Patrick's Day weekend, right? I mean, you've got to, you know, you're, Tuesday, I'm sure, uh, you're, you're going to proclaim Christ, but what you do tonight and tomorrow is going to have huge implications as to whether or not those, voice, those words carry any weight. I mean, honestly. As you stand at that crossroads, if you choose to do what's right, regardless of the circumstance, the payoff, verse 4, into verse 3 and verse 4, is that when you pass the test, your faith is strengthened, produces endurance. Endurance produces ultimately a perfect result that results in your completion, perfection, where you lack in nothing. It doesn't mean you become a perfect person, but it means when we face a circumstance, neutral as it is, and we do what's right, that test suddenly brings about endurance, strength, and faith, honor before God and man, and we benefit as a result. You go on to the next little section here, first, uh, James chapter 1. Look at what it says, verses 13 through 15. <laughs> Same Greek word is used, parasmos. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. God cannot be tempted by evil, and he doesn't tempt, himself tempt anyone. Each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. You see, there's ramifications both ways. And so you come to your crossroads, whatever it is, and you've got two options. You go the wrong way, sin leads to death. Every time we sin, something dies. You, you may be a believer, you're still going to heaven, God's not going to abandon you. But every time we sin, something dies. Maybe integrity, maybe testimony, maybe peace, maybe joy. Every time we sin, something dies. But if we face that same set of circumstances, that same crossroads, and we choose to go the right way, and we, do, we obey and we honor God, what that produces is what it says in the first part of James. Endurance, stronger faith, honor before God and man. Every temptation is a test. You know it. I mean, you said it twice already yourself. <laughs> Let's go back for a second to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 again. So he says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Paul says three things about temptation here. Uh, and again, when we face those crossroads in our lives, these three things apply. He says, number one, you're not going to face anything that's not common to man. In other words, you're never going to face a superhuman, unsurmountable uh, circumstance in your life that you, you can't possibly do what's right remember when you're a kid, you probably tried this one if your mom or dad were believers. Hey, the devil made me do this. Hey, I couldn't help it. The devil made me do it. That didn't work for long back then, did it? It probably doesn't work very well today either. You're not going to face a temptation that you're not ever going to be able to make it through. It doesn't matter how hard it is at work. It doesn't matter how uh, difficult things may be in your marriage and how appealing that other person may look like to you. It doesn't matter how insurmountable that circumstance may seem. You're not the only one who's ever faced it. <laughs> Your temptation is common to man. Number two, he says, you're never going to face a circumstance or crossroads that's beyond what you're able. I mean, God is faithful. God is with you. It's not as though he said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, except you know, on those rare instances when someone may entice you. No, God says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. We're able to overcome any circumstance that comes in our lives. And number three, he says, and by the way, there will never be a crossroads, a circumstance, a temptation where God will not provide a way of escape. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. I mean, if it's not guaranteed, then this passage is a lie. You may as well throw the Bible in the trash. 
Because God says that with the temptation that God allows in your life, that crossroads, he will provide a way of escape. It is there. We can look for it. Whether we take it is up to us. But it is there. We are without excuse. There is never an instance where God will say, you know what, hey, that was a tough one. I'm going to let you slide on this. Never. And so if every temptation is a test, and if most every one of us stand at those crossroads where we have to decide, do I go the right way or do I go the wrong way, then how do I make application of this to my life? Let me give you three things real quick and we're done. Three things real fast. I hope you'll jot them down. They're real simple. And they're three simple words. The first is identify. You're standing at your crossroads. Some of you are already there right now. When you leave this church, you're going to be right there in the crossroads. You're going to face that circumstance that's neutral, but it's either going to be a test if you do what's right, or it's going to be a temptation looking back if you, if you go the wrong way. First thing to do is just identify. Take a second and identify. You could probably just say remember. It's probably a better word, actually, uh, but identify is what I thought of first. So identify. In other words, just remind yourself that every temptation is a test. You, you find yourself at the crossroads. It's kind of that open manhole cover. You weren't expecting it. Like, man, I, didn't even, I wasn't ready for this temptation today. I wasn't ready for this circumstance. Just remember, identify the simple truth that every temptation is a test. Hey, I got two options here. Identify. Number two, evaluate. Take a second to evaluate. I heard of a guy, I didn't know him, but I heard of a guy who kept in his wallet all of the consequences that would come if he ever cheated on his wife. And he had them listed, literally, specifically, in detail, in his wallet, so that whenever the circumstance would come, whenever he would be feeling that crossroads, he could pull out that list and he could remind himself as he evaluated of the cost if he were to go the wrong way, standing before my wife and telling her I've broken my vows, bringing in my children, telling them and explaining to them how dad had fallen, the worst that he had ever fallen in his life. If I remember correctly, this person was in ministry, standing before my church, confessing my sin before people who had placed their trust in me, losing my career, losing my job, losing everything that I had worked for, losing the value of my testimony, losing the influence of my life, and the list went on and on, and he kept it in his wallet. So that whenever he faced the crossroads in that specific area, he could pull the list out, he could evaluate. And whenever we face those crossroads, remember, identify every temptation as a test, number two, evaluate what will it cost me if I give in how am I going to lose if I give into this and go the wrong direction but then at the same time how is this going to be a blessing in my life if this is a test and I pass how can I benefit as a result how will I be strengthened how will I how will my testimony be benefited how will I have more of a voice in my children's life how will I be able to have greater influence in the lives of those around me how will I be able to lay my head on my pillow at night and have peace and joy and comfort and to know that all is right between myself and God how is it going to bless and benefit benefit me if I go the right way. Because what often happens when we face the crossroads, we make the stupid decision, and stupid is all the way through the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, up to where we stand today. We make a stupid decision without first evaluating. That's why they say hindsight is twenty twenty. It always looks clear when we look back. Why don't we just make hindsight and to foresight and, and let it be twenty twenty as, as well and just look and evaluate at the options ahead of time? And when you face the crossroads, just evaluate. It won't take you half a day. Probably it'll take you 60 seconds and say, how is this going to cost me if I do wrong? And how is this going to benefit me if I do right? So identify every temptation is a test. Evaluate the ramifications, both positive and negative. And then number three, decide. I mean, you've got to decide. You've got a choice to make. It's life. It's nobody else's choice can't blame it on somebody else 
You're not nearly the victim that you may sometimes think you are. It's your choice. Now here's the blessing. That if you were a believer, meaning you have turned from your sin, you've confessed it before God, and you've asked Jesus Christ, God himself, to come in and forgive you and to wash away your sin and to be your Savior and your Lord. If you, if you have that relationship with God where you've done that, here's, here's where the game changes. That as you make your decision, number one, you can pray. you got a direct shot to God. You don't need a priest. You don't need a preacher. You don't need anybody else. You can be in any certain place that you want to be. And when you say, dear God, he says, I'm here. And you can pray. And he also makes a promise in the book of James. Hey, ask me for wisdom. I'll give it. <laughs> My promise, he says. So as you identify every crossroad there, every temptation is also a test. As you evaluate the positives and the negatives, what if I obey, what if I disobey? And as you begin to pray, and as you lean on other Christians, because you've got other Christians around you, right, who know God, they have a good, good strong walk with the Lord, they've got their head on straight, they love you, they care for you, they're going to speak truth into your life. You come to them, you ask their input as you make your decision, if you've got time to do that. You've got the Holy Spirit, God himself, living inside of you. And as you read his word day by day, it may not speak to you that morning when you have your devotion, but a couple months later, God may bring it back because it's in there. The Holy Spirit himself in your life will begin to bring God's truth to light in the midst of your circumstances at your crossroads. And as you stand there, perhaps the biggest decision of your life, where going the wrong way will cost you a whole lot more than a gold medal, a whole lot more than a winner's platform. It may cost you your family. It may cost you your career. It may cost you your testimony. It may cost you unknown, unknown amounts in your life. That as you stand there, and as you pray, and as you allow the Holy Spirit to speak into your life, it's going to ultimately be your choice to decide. Do I honor and follow and trust the Lord and die to self? Or do I do something different? What this passage teaches is that every temptation is also a test. And when we pass, <laughs> man, what God does. But when we fail, he still loves us. He doesn't love us more because we do better or less because we do worse. He loves us just as we are. But when we fail, oh, the consequences that come. And I don't know what crossroads you stand at today. And I don't know if it's a temptation or a test. That'll be determined once you decide which way to go. Doesn't sound fair, does it? But it's just the way it is. The circumstance you face, that crossroads is neutral. And I think all of Scripture screams, just follow God. Let's pray. Lord, um, what a powerful verse verse 13 and Lord the the impact it could have on lives even today of people standing at crossroads with choices to make some some crossroads Lord that there's a lot at stake maybe a marriage or a job peace joy Lord, some are standing at crossroads today. Lord, if they go the wrong way, the joy they've always known in their walk with you, it's just going to diminish. The devil doesn't tell us the full story. And so, Lord, this for some perhaps is the most, the most important message they may hear this whole year. And so, God, we, we know what it means to stand at a crossroads. We know what it means to face circumstances 
that we're not always really ready for. But God, we thank you that because of your spirit in us, because of your word that speaks to us, because of your great love for us, and the strength that you give in our walks with Christ, we thank you that there is no circumstance that's insurmountable for us. We thank you that there is no circumstance where we cannot possibly win. We thank you that in every circumstance, God, that we, as Romans tells us, can be more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. And so, Lord, for those who stand at a crossroads today or in these days to come, Lord, help us to choose right. Help us to choose good. Help us to choose honor. Help us to choose obedience. Not for our sake and our glory, God, but for your glory. Knowing that as we honor you, that you also, according to the book of Deuteronomy, will honor us. And so, God, help us to apply this as we need to in our lives. And for those who don't know you, Lord, may they make the biggest decision they'll ever make to lay down their sin and to invite Jesus himself to come in to forgive and to take over. And so, God, we pray that you bless now this time of decision. Use it. Use it for good. And may you be honored through it in Jesus' name. Amen.